Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us here today. This is Greg Lois. Today is August 15th, and we are talking about medical treatment in New York workers' compensation cases. And I know this doesn't seem exciting topic, but a lot's changed this year on that. Uh, so let me just start off by saying, hey, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm hoping that you are as tan as I am. I've been sitting on a beach for the last couple days. Uh, my kids, I got an uh, eight-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 12-year-old, and they were crabbing. And the last uh, last night, all I ate was crabs that my kids caught and cooked. So what a fun um, weekend I had. I hope your weekend was great. And um, I know when you're it's summertime and we're like, hmm, do we really need to jump into these webinars? Are we really this excited about workers' compensation? But I was thinking about this presentation all day because I had to change the whole presentation for today because so much has changed in New York workers' compensation from a medical treatment perspective. Now, some stuff didn't change, and I'll talk about that too, but I really want to talk about the new stuff, which is our new medical treatment guidelines and this onboard limited release system. So today, our topics are going to be these guidelines. We're going to talk about onboard limited release. I'm going to talk to you about uh, what you do or what happens when there's out-of-state care issues. I have to talk about medicinal marijuana just a little bit. I got to talk a little bit about telemedicine and the impact of COVID-19 and really what's going to happen on that in terms of medical treatment. Now, this is a completely live presentation. This is my first time going through these slides. This has been very expanded since last year. Um, so as I go through this stuff, understand that the law and the practice just changed uh, in May of 2022. And so this is our first webinar really addressing that. So a lot of information I'm going to be sharing with you today is new. It's um, just changing. And we're all sort of dynamically responding to the changes that have been recently implemented. So I'm hoping that this is fertile ground for a lot of great questions today. Please feel free to type your questions into me. Uh, as we're going through the presentation, I will um, see questions popping up in my question box. Um, my practice is to go through the questions at the end. Um, so hold your, so type them in as we're going along. Please ask the question because I'm certain there's somebody else out there. There's more than 1,200 people on this webinar uh, who's probably saying, "Hey, I've got the same or similar question, and I'd like to know that answer." Um, okay, so let's jump in. First. Uh, we're going to talk today about medical treatment guidelines and how they apply to a workers' compensation case. Just remember, the claimant in a New York workers' compensation case is entitled to all curative and palliative treatment, which is only limited by those medical treatment guidelines. Um, there are new guidelines, and we'll talk about that in a second. Once uh, the treatment is no longer curative, meaning the person's functionality is no longer being improved or restored, then they are at maximum medical improvement. And that's an important milestone in your New York workers' compensation case. It's the reason when we defend a workers' compensation case here at Lois, we want to defend it from beginning to end because that medical is progressing through the case and hopefully the person is improving from more medical care, not getting worse. And so there is going to be a moment we're going to be starting to push saying, hey, look, this person has reached a medical plateau. Now, um, some palliative care is still allowed, and that's that's care that just keeps you at your current baseline or helps you improve uh, your pain response, uh, but it's not no longer curative. And of course, that is still going to be provided to the claimant after maximum medical improvement has been reached. And those are things like uh, maybe the need for periodic physical therapy to maintain function, maybe some chiropractic treatment, or certainly some pain management treatment, uh, which would continue after the person has reached 
um, a, a plateau, a maximum medical improvement plateau. Um, let's also remember that you can close cases in New York. Now, there's lots of ways to close cases in New York um, by way of scheduled loss of use. Uh, that would be for this specific loss of function to a body part or for a loss of wage earning capacity. And that would be a finding that the person's overall wage earning capacity has been diminished because of a medical impairment. The other way you could resolve matters is by way of Section 32. We love Section 32 here. That's a lump sum dismissal. But really, to get the case there, now you can settle a case at any time in New York, right? But most claimants uh, in a litigated case are pushing treatment or inactive treatment, and maybe they're resistant or hesitant to resolve their matter because they believe that more medical care is necessary. So in our cases, we've got to push them often to maximum medical improvement. Now, we got to understand the definition of maximum medical improvement, and it's really a finding uh, that further care is not going to improve their function or restore further function, and that no further improvement is likely to be anticipated. Again, the need for palliative care is not an impediment to the judge of compensation determining that someone's reached maximum medical improvement. With the challenge with maximum medical improvement in New York is the fact that most treating physicians that the claimants are going to, because remember, they can choose their own physicians and they are often directed to which physician to use by their attorney, their representative attorney, most physicians are not going to find uh, voluntarily that the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. So um, the board has had to address this. They've had to address the fact that maximum medical improvement is oftentimes not going to be found in the claimant treating physician notes. Also, the board's had to address the situation where the claimant is really reached a medical plateau. It's been a year or two years post-accident. They've been through a course of care and they're just simply not progressing. But the claimant comes to court and says, Judge, you're right, I, I, I'm in the, uh, my, my function has not been fully restored. I am not back to my pre-injury status. But Judge, there might be a future treatment in the future someday that would benefit me. And for that reason, I'm not at maximum medical improvement. Well, the boards had to address this, and there is a bulletin that was issued by the board, and it was issued almost 10 years ago now, that says, quote, the mere assertion of the possibility of future surgery is not a bar to the court finding maximum medical improvement. The appropriateness of surgical intervention should be evaluated in light of the applicable medical treatment guidelines. A claimant must not only qualify for surgery, but actually have specific plans to undergo that treatment, things like actually requesting pre-authorization of the surgery, actually having it scheduled, actually um, you know, having it planned to undertake. And the reason the board had to state this and had to clarify what is maximum medical improvement is because the claimants had a very easy time defeating the argument that, hey judge, they've reached a curative plateau. It's now time for us to address permanent residual disability, whether that might be way of a scheduled loss of use award, a loss of wagering capacity award, or by way of a Section 32 settlement, by simply coming into court and saying, yeah, Judge, I, I've been in care for years, I'm not getting any better, but um, maybe someday there'll be treatment, or maybe I'm contemplating a potential surgery that maybe my doctor mentioned to me a year ago, I'm thinking about having it. And in the old days, the judges would say, oh, well, there might be further treatment they need, I'm not gonna find them to be at maximum medical improvement. Well, your defense counsel or opposing counsel needs to be armed with the statement of the Workers' Compensation Board, really clarifying that the mere assertion of the potential for further treatment is not in and of itself a bar to the judge of compensation 
finding maximum medical improvement. And often, this is the big hurdle in a workers' compensation case. Remember, the claimant is getting paid based on their doctor's statement that they are impaired. Opposing counsel is getting ongoing payments, or sometimes payments, for the amount of disability, temporary disability, meaning wage replacement, they obtain for the claimant. So you've got parties interested in the system in really keeping the claimant from having reached maximum medical improvement. And this is really the place to focus. In our practice, uh, we are constantly in eCase, which is the electronic docketing system, monitoring the medical treatment and looking for those changes. And here are the words that we're looking for. We're looking for situations where the um, uh, treating physician says their condition is, quote, fixed and stable, close quote. In our opinion, that's another way of saying the person has reached maximum medical improvement. Their condition's stable, it's fixed, meaning it's not getting better. Here's another one where the treating physician, the treatment plan simply says, quote, return to office PRN, right, which is a Latin term, which means come back here as needed. That's really the physician saying, there's nothing more curative for me to do for you. You've reached your plateau. Thanks for playing. This is it. This is, you now have, if there is any residual impairment, a permanent impairment. Look, there's lots of psychosocial reasons why the um, claimant might be in sort of denial that they're not going to get any better. And that's take away, again, that secondary gain uh, motivation. Um, it's, it's tough to think, hey, I've been in treatment for a year or two years. I've had a surgery. It didn't really restore my function. And really coming to terms psychosocially with the determination that, hey, I'm not going to really restore this function all the way. That's a tough thing. Uh, and oftentimes the doctors, we have to pick through the medical records to find these statements. Another statement is, sometimes you'll see this in a medical record, reached a plateau. Okay, That's saying the person reached maximum medical improvement. Or sometimes the physician will say uh, they've reached their normal level of functioning, meaning this is it. Um, and sometimes that will be accompanied by the physician saying, hey, they need to return here in three weeks for more care. Okay, cool, they can still go for more care. It's palliative at that point because they've reached that plateau. More frequently, it's going to be our IME physician that we're gonna have to rely on to say, hey, this person has reached the maximum benefit of care. And what you'll see sometimes in an IME is they will say, has reached maximum medical improvement, or they'll say, condition is fixed, it's no longer, um, this is further treatment's no more curative. I've often seen this one a lot, quote, no need for further treatment from an orthopedic standpoint, close quote, or neurologic or psychiatric standpoint. You know, any of those statements to me would be our physician saying essentially this person has reached their medical plateau, it's time to move on and assess as to whether or not they have a permanent physical impairment or a permanent medical impairment. That's what we're really looking for. Reaching maximum improvement is something that we're often gonna have to actively push for, okay? Again, we're usually gonna utilize an IME to determine that this further course of care, and again, typically we're years into the case, they've had physical therapy for three years, and oftentimes we'll need to get an IME doctor to come in and say, look, you've had physical therapy for 24 months, you've reached the plateau, this is what it is, right? Um, your next steps, typically when that happens, would be to file an RFA with the Workers' Compensation Board. That's a request for further action, sort of an analog to a motion saying, person has reached plateau, right? Um, you know, if the um, IME finds a permanent residual disability, well, 
great. You can check the box in the on the RFA and say, Judge, we're ready to move on to the permanent impairment stage. Um, you should instruct the claimant, Your Honor, uh, to get their own report as in regards to their permanent medical impairment, and we're ready to go and litigate or resolve that issue. Oftentimes, there will have to be litigation on this issue of whether or not the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. How do you win that? Or what is winning? I mean, winning to us is finding, hey, the person's reached a medical plateau, further treatment is no longer curative, go get your own examination, claimant, on the extent and nature of your permanent residual disability so we can come back to the court and resolve this matter and it will be resolved with them getting a monetary award. So we litigate this by presenting the testimony of our IME physician and of course cross-examining the claimant's treating physician and that is typically uh, resolved in over the phone by way of telephone deposition. Um, at that time, of course, we're going to be raising objections. We're going to be trying to challenge or get concessions from the treating physician. Really, oftentimes, we're asking the treating physician, hey, is further treatment going to be curative or not? We need them to answer on that point. And once the treating physician says, no, they've reached the plateau, or they'll say something like, uh, no, they're at maximum benefit of care, great. You've now established maximum medical improvement, and it's time to move on. This is often the stage in the case where we're going to bring in non-medical information, and that could be the result of either covert or non-covert surveillance, demonstrating that the person does have a physical permanent impairment or does not, right? This is our opportunity to challenge that. Our best practice is, even when we're just litigating the issue of maximum medical improvement, is to submit a summation brief to the judge of compensation. Remember, the claimant is alleging that they have uh, less than a permanent disability and they have a physical impairment that is keeping them from working. Our physician is saying either A, they have no residual disability or they have some but they really don't need any more curative care and we're trying to get the judge to litigate or sorry adjudicate this issue. I think the best practice is to do that in writing and the reason I like to do that in writing is because these are very short summation briefs that summarize the findings of both the treating and the examining physicians for the judge of compensation. If you do this right, you do this well, the judge is just reading your summation into the record and adopting the findings that you're asking the judge to find. But if you don't win, and frequently you don't win, you're ready to go on your appeal, right? Because you already have that summation that you can just copy and paste into your appeal brief, essentially lays out for the appeals board, the uh, board panel, exactly why the judge of compensation was wrong in not agreeing with you that the claimant has reached maximum improvement. All right, so that's a little bit about the, this, the goal here. We're trying to get this person to maximum medical improvement. We're trying to push these cases to resolution. Here's our biggest tool, all right? Our biggest tool are these new medical treatment guidelines, and there are 17 of them, and they cover a lot, most of the injuries that you're gonna see in a normal workers' compensation case. First one, and the one that I'm happiest with, is the non-acute pain medical treatment guideline. This is a guideline for the treating physician as to how they're going to be treating this long-term alleged pain. And this is particularly important because so many cases, it's not the physical injury that's keeping the person disabled and out of work. It is now their pain complaints and their pain issues and their uh, lifestyle issues that are keeping them out. And so we've got great non-acute pain management guidelines, which really should be known back and forth uh, by the defense attorney because this is going to be one of the most important things that we're going to be litigating in the case. And of course, specific body parts and conditions 
um, and systems are going to be covered by the medical treatment guidelines. Mid and low back injury, neck injury, knee injury, shoulder injury, carpal tunnel injuries, ankle, foot, elbow, hip, groin injuries, hand, wrist, forearm injuries, hearing loss, eye injuries, um, stress disorders, depression, traumatic brain injury, and of course my favorite, complex regional pain syndrome uh, treatment guidelines. And these are all to be viewed as good for us as employers or insurers because they limit the constellation of potential treatments that a claimant can obtain for a specific condition. Now, we'll talk in a second about what about when the treating physician thinks, hey, this person needs treatment that exceeds these guidelines. We'll talk about onboard in just a second. But these guidelines are um, really useful uh, in, in our office, our practice here, is that every single person that works uh, in the litigation teams, and we have 40 attorneys here, um, all have to um, be conversant in the medical treatment guidelines because this is how we're going to cross-examine the treating physician and these are the guidelines that we're going to expect our independent medical expert to be absolutely versed in so that their report is based on the treatment guidelines. The second thing that we do here on these treatment guidelines is look at them as not just limits on the kind of care that the person can obtain but also the correct pathway they should follow. Because remember, the reason they had to put these guidelines into place is because the treating physicians were recommending treatments that were not always curative, um, that were recursive, that were the same treatment over and over again, despite the fact that there is no response, no improvement. So, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different outcome the second time. Well, if the person's been treating for low back pain with a chiropractor for three years and they've had no improvement in their low back pain, well, is that effective treatment? And so the great thing about these medical treatment guidelines is that they do limit uh, the kinds of treatment that should be obtained, and it is based on evidence, meaning scientific evidence, as to which treatments work and which do not. Because there's a lot of junk science out there, right? And there's a lot of things that people are trying that don't necessarily restore function or improve their functional ability, right? So those are things that are limited from the guidelines. So again, they're the best practice uh, for treatment in New York and the treating physicians should follow them. Now, there's new stuff in these guidelines because these were just redone. In fact, all existing guidelines were updated and these have been in place since 2012, have been updated in the last two years and a number of these guidelines are new. In fact, 11 of them are new as of May 2022, and that's incredibly useful for us. The existing guidelines have over 250 pages of changes, and that's for guidelines involving pain, low back, neck, cervical spine, shoulder, and knee. Massive changes, useful changes for us on the defense side. Most notable to me, and particularly in those non-acute pain, there's now a new appendix, which provides the treating physician with an opiate weaning course built into the guidelines. So uh, not only does it recommend that opiate weaning begin aggressively, let's get people off these narcotics which are causing so much disability, but also there's a schedule for weaning that's published in the guidelines and that the treating pain physician should really be following. And this is an important tool because the complication in so many of our cases is addiction. It's addiction. Uh, it's addiction to opiates and long-term dependence on opiates. Uh, so now it's built into the guidelines. It's easy to reference. It's easy to push for. So that's something that we think is really useful and helpful. All right, what else is new? Well, in 2022, in May, the board rolled out the system that they've been threatening us with for years called Onboard. And they 
They didn't roll out the full system that they intended to roll out, so they called it Onboard Limited Release. That's the official title of the computer system and the system where employers, insurers, and uh, treatment providers are supposed to interact with in order to approve or challenge the necessity of additional medical care. Uh, this system is now mandatory for all payers and it's mandatory for all providers. And really, this is the system that's going to be utilized when the treating physician wants to provide care or have care authorized that exceeds or deviates from the medical treatment guidelines. So remember, medical treatment guidelines are intended to include a description of all evidence-based medical procedures uh, and processes intended to restore function and restore the uh, claimant to uh, working ability. Well, these are circumstances where the treating physician says, I know better than what's in those guidelines, and I want to do something else. And there are specific things that the, if the treating physician wants to do, they have to request authorization through this onboard computer system. The most important one is repeat surgeries, all repeat surgeries. In other words, the physician's coming forward and saying, hey, I already tried this surgery. It didn't work. I want to try it again, or I need to go fix it. It's time for a revision. That's a moment where they, the parties should come together and there should be a discussion through this onboard system as to whether or not that's going to be authorized or not. So uh, all different requests uh, come in through this onboard system. And as you can see, um, there's different times to respond for each different type of request that comes in. Um, this is challenging to keep track of. And again, it's a computer system where the request comes in and it's matched to a claim and the claims professional is given a certain period of time. You can see the times to respond, eight days, 15 days, 30 days, four days, right, for the uh, claims professional to respond and then uh, either approve or disapprove the treatment. Now, this system is new. Uh, it's been implemented with a couple bumps in the road so far, okay, but this is the mandatory system. I'm expecting that people who are watching this presentation have probably been through some of the board training and gone to some of the board webinars. In fact, I think they had one last week, uh, two weeks ago, on answering questions because so much has been a question. But here's the way it's supposed to work. Multiple levels of review based on whether or not the treatment should be approved or disapproved. If a level one reviewer, for example, thinks that something should be denied in part or in total, it goes to a level two reviewer, which is going to be a, a payer a physician who is supposed to determine whether or not. And then there's a level three review where the board can review the PAR. And finally, the last level of review is the matter going before a workers' compensation law judge for the judge to determine whether or not the treatment, which admittedly deviates or departs from the medical treatment guidelines, should or should not be authorized. So here's the basic system that these uh, requests are supposed to go through. Now we're seeing a lot of issues with these. So if you're watching this webinar and you're saying to yourself, man, I, it doesn't move work as smoothly as those four boxes, Greg. Um, yeah, you're not alone. There's been a lot of challenge around this and getting this right. So uh, most of our clients um, are not having the claims professional, meaning adjuster or examiner, approve and disapprove individual uh, requests that come through onboard, which are called PARs, prior authorization requests. Usually my clients are using a delegate. They're hiring a third party to review those requests analyze them at that level one or level two stage, and then respond appropriately through the onboarding system. And the computer system is designed to allow that delegation of those. Um, the challenge here is that, hey, maybe we've got a case which is really close to settlement, or we've pushed it to maximum medical improvement, or we're at a place that we're trying to get to in the litigation so we can reach resolution of the case. 
and then that PAR request comes in through the computer system, and maybe because it's a delegate who's, you know, there's no way of flagging cases as uh, litigated or not litigated or about to settle in the onboard PAR review system, maybe our delegate is hitting, okay, approved, because on paper, maybe the approval should be made based on the objective medical evidence that's extant in the, um, you know, the medical folder. But it actually negatively impacts our litigation position in case. So that's one thing I've seen, okay? Uh, other things we've seen is we've seen a lot of confusion about dates and deadlines, and of course challenges where, for example, a body part or a condition which has not yet been established in the workers' compensation case has been uh, the subject of a PAR request, a request for authorization, a request for treatment. How is that resolved, right? And how do you dispute that in the PAR system, which the answer we've received is that it goes to level two reviewers. You've got to deny it administratively, which kind of is a, a wonky workaround. Uh, it seems to me it shouldn't work that way, but that's how it works. So we are seeing issues with the onboarding system. Um, it's clear that the board envisions a system of almost seamless computer interaction between the parties. Uh, the board did allow for delegation of this duty to or obligation to review these to third parties, and we do see most of our clients taking advantage of that obligation, of that opportunity to delegate this re review, just like we've always done with medical utilization review. It's it's really a system built on top of a system in a lot of ways, and meant to supplement uh, or replace, I should say, not supplement, replace the paper authorization system. Again, filed through EKS, which we've had for so long, and worked pretty well. All right, the next little topics that I just want to briefly touch on, and then I'm going to get to your questions on this stuff, out-of-state care. Just please remember that there is case law in New York that says the medical treatment guidelines do apply to out-of-state care, okay? The claimant can't simply cross state lines and go, ha-ha, I don't have to seek your approval for this treatment, or it's not somehow, uh, you know, now that I, I crossed the river from New York City into New Jersey, or I, I stepped into Connecticut, all of a sudden medical treatments uh, do not apply. Um, the fee schedule might not apply, so that's something that still can be challenged. Um, but uh, we are seeing so many medical provider claims and medical provider issues where the physician is purposely sending the claimant to another state. And oftentimes they're doing this to take advantage of the fact that other states, neighboring states like New Jersey, does not have a medical fee schedule. So this is really kind of a scummy thing that the doctors do. I've got one doctor's office. We just we just brought this up at a meeting last week. They're located in Brooklyn but they're sending all of their uh, patients for surgery to Bergenfield, New Jersey. And again, these are patients who do not live in New Jersey, they live in New York. They're being put in cars and delivered over to their Bergenfield Surgical Center. And the reason they're doing this is because they are trying to whack the insurer for non-medical fee schedule uh, rates uh, or reimbursement for the medical treatment they're providing. Uh, the medical fee schedule in New York is pretty robust. It does cover everything. Please remember that um, Medicare is going to do a cost uh, of living adjustment uh, for all the physicians, which means our fee schedule is going to um, go up a little bit as well in New York. But in New Jersey, the same surgery is between six and 12 times more costly than it would be in New York. And that's because New Jersey is not a fee schedule state. So we're still seeing a lot of that. Now, my office defends those actions. Uh, we defend actions where the um, physician has purposely sent the claimant to another state, provides the treatment to the other state, and then tries to attack or demand reimbursement at what they're calling usual and customary for New Jersey. We win on those. Uh, just so you know, uh, the fee schedule, there is case law that says the New York State fee schedule should still be applied, and the way that the place to litigate that issue should be before the Workers' Compensation Board. So if you're having that issue, I'm happy to talk to you about 
what you do with out-of-state treatment and out-of-state billing. Um, a few years ago, the board also expanded the number of providers who can both provide care and then seek a prior authorization request. Um, they may do this directly and they are filing this now directly through the onboard system. Um, they're also um, changing uh, who can make variance requests and that's been in place for a while. Last thing, New York does have a mandatory drug formulary. This is good for us, it's good news for us. It does indicate that physicians should uh, not be prescribing name brands, they should be prescribing generics where possible, and it does limit out and say that no compounds and no custom formulations should be approved. Those need to go through a variance request in order to be approved. Uh, last two topics are going to be medicinal marijuana. Yeah, it's a reality in New York. New York does have dispensaries all over the place. Um, the compassionate use law has been expanded to cover basically any condition you can get medicinal marijuana for, including, you know, headaches, uh, sunburn, whatever. Okay, it's really easy to get this applied. Um, and it's not covered by the fee schedule and it's not addressed in the formulary at this time. So this is a direct reimbursement and the way that's done is through direct reimbursement to the claimant. You are not required to directly pay for these prescriptions, but you are required to reimburse the claimant where there has been the appropriate request and referral for medicinal marijuana. All right, um, COVID-19, it's one of its big impacts has been uh, the expansion and the adoption of telemedicine. And we're seeing telemedicine used in lots of uh, situations now, probably some that they were never intended it for to be uh, utilized in. But telemedicine is valid and it's considered the same as in-person medical treatment. Um, you want to be very careful when you look at some of these telemedicine records, uh, particularly when it's a physician adding in new body parts. Was it actually a physician? Were they actually present? Because what we're discovering is a lot of these are being signed off by physician's assistants or nurse practitioners, and the physician's not even present in the building, doesn't even aware what their name is being signed to. So that's something to be thoughtful about. Um, treatment for COVID-19 and long COVID, you know, most of the COVID-19 cases at this point, um, you should know that they have been disputed. We have been prevailing, in fact, last week, and we just put this on our firm website. Um, and on, um, on our LinkedIn sites and social media sites. We just had a, a great win in a COVID-19 case where the uh, workers' compensation judge found, um, hey, that th this person uh, alleged a direct exposure, and then of course the judge brought in prevalence. Um, that was overturned. We had a great board panel decision saying, nope, the claimant did not demonstrate a significant exposure. New York also has this idea that if, if COVID-19 was prevalent in the workplace, uh, then any claim for COVID would therefore be compensable. That's being challenged. Uh, we already have the appeal. It looks like we have the lead appeal in the state of New York. We expect a decision on that, on this concept of prevalence as establishing COVID-19 to come out next month. I, I think in September, we're gonna get a decision from the appellate division. That's gonna have an impact on a great number of cases. And of course, I'll let you know what that impact is. In regards to long COVID, I frankly haven't seen a single long COVID case. Put that in perspective, we're defending thousands and thousands of cases, so uh, I haven't seen this um, become an issue yet, but I know that um, they're circling the wagons and trying to come up with long COVID as a real condition. The Workers' Compensation Board and the chair are constantly twittering and tweeting about long COVID and trying to encourage people to file these claims. At this point, we haven't seen them, but 
we're going to defend them just like we would defend any other COVID-19 case, which typically would be the challenge that does this condition exist? Is it actually causally related to the workplace alleged exposure? And what exactly was that exposure? That's how we're defending those. All right. That's a little bit about um, medical treatment. I just want to also let you know that next month I am running a seven-hour training course on workers' compensation. I call it my soup to nuts. It's beginning to end. It starts very basic with like what is workers' compensation, right, and ends with really advanced topics in workers' compensation. This probably isn't right for you. If you're watching this webinar, you probably know a couple of things about workers' comp and you're coming here to ask questions, uh, but this is really good, I think, for training people maybe on your team who are new to workers' compensation and really need an overview of it and an opportunity to ask questions. It's a seven-hour course. It begins on September 26th, which is a Monday. We spread it out over a couple of days. Uh, it's all done via live webinar. I will have a live audience with me as well asking questions, so it's a great uh, opportunity to really learn more. If you're interested in that, I will be sending you emails reminding you about this opportunity uh, and I would encourage any of your less experienced people uh, who need to learn maybe the, the nuts and bolts of workers' compensation to join. All right, uh, that's my canned presentation. Let's come over here. I'm hoping there are good questions on this topic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. We got a bunch here. All right, good. Uh, I see you guys. Um, okay. Someone asked a question, but then uh, departed. So it says uh, Robert has just left. But Greg, what's the subject number of the workers' comp document you refer to? Uh, it's the 2013 bulletin. It's in my handbook. Uh, but I can certainly respond to you, Robert, and give you the exact pinpoint site because it's very important that your defense counsel has that at their fingertips. Um, Karen says, hey, Greg, is this webinar just audio or are there also slides? My screen is static on the landing page. Ah, no, we've we've got slides, right? Kendrick's telling me, yeah, it's working. Okay, Suzanne says, Greg, where can we get the medical treatment guidelines? Okay, great. I don't recommend you print them out, okay? Uh, you'll find them on the board's website, which is wcb.ny.gov, and you'll see right on there, there's medical treatment. It says information for uh, providers. Click on that, and they'll easy link to all of the medical treatment guidelines. There's 17 of them. Each one is well over 100 pages. So we don't print them out here. We use them on the online reference, which is honestly probably better than printing them out or having a copy of them um, because you can do control F, command search. You can look for things. Uh, you can get right to the place you need to in the guidelines. Um, all right, Teresa's saying, hey, Greg, level one reviewer cannot grant without prejudice. Only can be done at level two. Um, Thanks, you're right. Uh, I think that might be just a quick typo. I'll check on that. Bonnie said, Greg, as is known to date, will monkeypox be dealt with as similar to COVID cases where they'll need to prevent, quote, present, quote, proof of where the virus was caught, close quote. What response do the workers' comp carriers have at this time with regard for filing? Uh, is controversy similar to those of COVID cases? Great, monkeypox, this is gonna be the new thing. I think they've declared a health emergency in New York State for monkeypox. Um, I think we just had our first death. I'm not certain. Uh, haven't seen one, but yeah, this should be treated like every other infectious condition. And in fact, should be treated just like COVID-19. The claimant will have to demonstrate a work-related direct specific exposure. Not enough to say, I'm alive, caught monkeypox, might be at work. They have to show us specifically and directly how it happened. That's the standard for infectious disease. And that standard, by the way, 
has been in place since the institution of the workers' compensation law in 1911. The workers' compensation law has been around for over 100 years. And in that time, we've dealt with sm uh, things as varied as measles, um, yeah, polio, I mean, all, all sorts of conditions. And the, the law has been unchanged for 100 years, right? That the claimant would have to first show that there is something work-related about the exposure, meaning I work in a hospital, on the measles ward, for example, and I'm exposed to people with measles all the time, and this person in particular coughed on me or exchanged bodily fluid with me, and that's why I caught the condition. Some, some um, arising out of in the course of employment, so I have to show, hey, that in the course of my employment, I'm exposed to this specific risk, and here's how it arose from this specific instance. So that's always been the standard and the threshold for an infectious disease. It's never changed. It's only with the COVID-19 where the board has come out with this new standard where they say, well, if the claimant can just say, hey, it's prevalent in my workplace, uh, then allegedly it's workers' comp related. Again, we're challenging that. We have the case. It's in the appellate division. The lead case challenges as to whether or not this new standard of prevalence should supersede the 100-year-old standard of, no, show me how it happened. Um, so I'm going to apply that same standard to uh, monkeypox, and I think you should too, which is most of those cases should be disputed or challenged, and the claimant has to demonstrate A, the relationship to work, and B, the specific exposure event or incident. Not simply enough to say, hey, I heard of someone once came into my store, we think they had uh, monkeypox, now I have monkeypox, per se, uh, com compensable. I don't think that's going to be the standard. All right, Cheryl asked a great question. Greg, what about when an out-of-state provider refuses to comply with medical treatment guidelines or sign up with the board? We see this when people move out of state. Um, how does New York Workers' Compensation Board find on treatment when the person no longer lives in New York? Okay, so there is case law on this, Cheryl, and it's the in-ray hospice case, which literally says that just because they're out of state doesn't mean that they don't have to follow the guidelines. Now, are they going to be filing all the forms and using maybe the same um, CMS-1500 that we're using now in New York for everything? Maybe not, but when you're reviewing, auditing, and thinking about medical utilization, you still get to apply the guidelines to that treatment. And this is going to require communication with these out-of-state providers to say, hey, hi, uh, you're treating this person, and that's wonderful. You, you can, maybe, comma, you have to follow the guidelines. Where that becomes a dispute, and you know where we see this come to dispute so many times in New Jersey, is where uh, the out-of-state provider is doing all sorts of treatments, which maybe wouldn't be allowed under the guidelines, and then they're charging you whatever their usual and customary rate is for that state. You know, there is case law. Um, the case is Bauman versus J&J. &J. We rely on it all the time. It says, hey, you're out of state and you're providing treatment. Well, the fee schedule applies, and if you don't like it, the place to litigate that is before the Workers' Compensation Board. We have lots of experience with litigating that and taking care of that for you. Uh, Dennis says, Greg, have you been at all successful in winning New York, New Jersey fee schedule cases where the claimant lives in New Jersey and works in New York? Uh, yes, absolutely, right? We make the challenge. The claimant files the medical, um, an application for provider payment in New York, sorry, in New Jersey. It goes before the Workers' Compensation Court in New Jersey. And I go in there and I say, first I file a motion to dismiss. And I say, Judge, this shouldn't be here. You've got no jurisdiction. The jurisdiction is with New York. That's where the treatment is coming from. And by the way, Judge, the board has a system to deal with this. When we're able to make that argument, um, almost invariably, the judge of compensation in New Jersey will dismiss the New Jersey medical provider application. The case will then continue to proceed in New York because remember, this is a New York workers' compensation case, and the board will be asked to issue or to adjudicate the issue of the fee dispute. 
nine times out of 10, the board applies their fee schedule. Well, they might make a small adjustment because again, the board's allowed to do that. The case law says it, but they're not um, agreeing to these eight times, 10 times, 12 times what the same uh, intervention would cost in New York. All right. Um, Cheryl says, Greg, regarding medicinal marijuana, are physicians required to prescribe just the drug or can we require them to be specific um, as to the equivalent of frequency and strength? Also, is medicinal marijuana covered in the medical treatment guidelines? Okay, good questions. First, not covered in the medical treatment guidelines, not specifically disallowed, okay? Uh, second thing is, uh, in regards to the how much and, and what is the frequency they should be taking it, absolutely, uh, that should be prescribed by the physician. But the way it's dispensed in New York um, typically uh, is going to be uh, up to the dispensary. And we're really, we're really comparing this, when I see this in terms of expense, I'm comparing it to what opiates are costing per month versus medicinal marijuana. It's roughly equivalent so far, and maybe someone else could correct me on that, maybe you're seeing a difference. Um, and because it's equivalent, uh, we're not really challenging really the cost of it, uh, we're challenging the efficacy of it. Is this more efficient? Is this getting them off all of the other drugs they're on? For example, people that have been on opiates for a long time uh, develop constipation, so now they're on drugs to deal with that. And they have other uh, commensurate uh, conditions or comorbidities that develop because of long-term dependence on narcotics. Well, uh, when we're replacing that with medicinal marijuana, we're typically seeing those other medications go away, so it's a net win for us in general. Um, Eric says, Greg, same problem. I don't see any slides. Yikes. Um, and Cheryl says, Greg, are tick bites covered? Yeah, tick bites could be covered in New York if the person's employment exposes them to insects or animals that could bite them. I mean, we've seen tick bite cases take place uh, on people who work for golf courses, for example, or people who work as landscapers. Uh, I've also seen people who work as pest remediators, you know, uh, the, the pest exterminators who get bitten by spiders, get bitten by wasps and things like that. And yeah, if there is a uh, medical injury that is directly related to the person's employment, then yes, that would be compensable. But again, you're going to have to look at what was the nature of the person's employment? Is this the kind of risk that we expect to rise out of the employment? And were they actually exposed to them? You know, was there an actual tick bite? Can we say when it happened and where it happened? In my experience, uh, my tick bite cases have all taken place in the context of landscapers or golf course landscapers. That's where I've seen those cases develop. All right, uh, that's my that's all the questions. Um, this was great. Uh, thanks for asking questions, guys. It makes it so much more fun. Um, all right, I'm going to send everyone an email so you're aware of what we're doing next month in terms of that 101 overview webinar. I hope you attend. In the meantime. Have a great week. Have a great summer. Get out there. Enjoy the good weather if you can. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.